Well, welcome to the Scoopcast, Greg Henderson. Uh, I guess for those of you listening that don't know much about Greg, a uh, professional cyclist racing for United Healthcare, but maybe just introduce yourself um, a little bit more in detail and sort of how uh, you got into the sport of cycling from, I'm guessing, a, a young age, maybe not. Yep, so I'm originally from Dunedin, New Zealand. Um, I'm 145 years old. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I'm still racing professionally. Yeah. Well, cycling really. adds like six years to your life every day. So, <laughs> no. So I, um, yeah, I grew up and obviously in, in New Zealand with uh, you know a rugby orientated uh, culture, but sort of diversed away from there and uh, and uh, got involved with, in cycling. But I originally, you know, I started with BMX. I raced that for eleven years. As I was about when I was four, I started racing. And uh, yeah, I just progressed through the ranks really at BMX into track cycling. Um, you know, I went to five Olympics for with track cycling, and and then um, you know, um, progressed. I signed a professional contract here when I was young in America. Raced here for a couple of years, and then um, I managed to get at a contract with T-Mobile for the 2006 season in Europe. So I did the last 10 years in Europe, 11 years, whatever. Um, yeah, racing for, well, the last six years I raced for um, Lotto Soudal, the Belgian, the Belgian setup. And I was, um, yes, yeah, so I've ridden now six Tour de France's. So as I was mentioning earlier, it's gonna be a nice, relaxed July, this this one coming. It's the first time I've ever ridden the, ridden the Tour, Tour de France for a long time. And um, yeah, that's sort of how my, my introduction to cycling began. It's just been a, my whole life, basically. I was, I was lucky enough to meet my wife, um, who was also, you know, very handy on the bike. She's professional herself, so she had a common interest there, which I think is almost impossible not to when you spend so much time on the road, so much time away, so much time travelling. Um, you know, I haven't lived in New Zealand for, oh, yeah, 20 years, you know. Um, I get to go back once a year, maybe just to visit mum and dad and you know my brother and his family. Um, and then back to Australia also with Katie, my wife. She's Australian and she has family. But yeah, it's just it's just travel, travel, race, race, travel. You know, it's a it's a tough environment. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people think that you know professional sports, whether it's football or basketball or, or cycling, it's sort of this glo- like glamorous kind of lifestyle and I, I feel like cycling particularly I mean a lot of it can be glamorous but maybe what are some of the things that most people don't know about that culture within you know the highest level of professional sport in in, in cycling that you know you're still you're still training super hard every day there's going to be really hard moments and there's crashing, and, and you know, obviously, you have a you have a broken hand right now, and we can talk about that. But what are what are some of the things that maybe the misconceptions about the sport of cycling that the average person may not know? Because I mean, I, I'd, I'd say most people listening have probably heard of the Tour de France mm. and have seen bits and pieces, but it's a it's a sport that, in terms of America, is still very unknown, or still you know, it's not quite mainstream yet. I think one of the biggest things is um, just the the diverse range of athlete that can actually be involved in cycling, and and then to find and put yourself in a category 
takes a lot of work. So, for example, I mean, the guys that specialise, for example, climbing the big mountains in France or Italy or wherever you are, they have to be 55, 60 kilos. I'm not sure what that is in pounds. Um, just to compete with the best in the world. And then, then you have the fast sprinter guys that are on the flat days where they have to to bang handlebars at 75 kilometres an hour, you know, and, and they have to be around 80, 75, 80 kilos. And just the, just the um, you know, how much work it stay, it, to stay in that sort of like, it's almost like a weight category in like in boxing, you mm-hmm. know, it's like to keep your power to be a sprinter, you know, because you can lose so much size by doing these long races, these 250, 300 kilometre races, you can lose so much size. So, you know, the proper nutrition and the proper training to keep this this size on, you know, it can actually sound, it can actually be very difficult. And it, of course, the opposite, you know, you're doing these long tours and these long races and these, these guys have got to actually watch their diet 100%. They have to be, they have to count every calorie and make sure that they're not overeating for their daily expenditure so that they stay super light, um, super skinny. So they or that they don't lose too much weight, you know. And so they can yeah, stay in that exact same weight category and, and compete with the best. So it's uh, I think that's one thing you don't, that's one of the parts of cycling you don't see, you know, just the work behind the scenes is not only just go out and ride your bike for four or five hours a day and then, you know, your, your small days are two hours and your big days are seven hours. It's, it's not... Everyone knows you have to train, and I'm sure there's other sports in the world that train really hard. It's it's the it's the finer things. Make sure you get your sleep patterns correct, you know, because you're travelling from one time zone to another time zone. It's the it's it's the ability to be able to snap onto time zones quickly. It's the, the ability to to have um, you know regular food intake in your breakfast, lunch, dinners, or, or whatever it is. It's just behind the scenes. I think it's the one thing that people don't know a lot about. When, it, when they look at cycling. Yeah, there's like all that kind of uh, culmination of all those small little details that fit into place, the sleep, the food, the the, the transfers between yeah. different stages and, and all those things add up. And, and yeah, most people don't see those those things. And, um, and it's always kind of interesting to hear about sort of some of those behind the scenes things. And uh, so what, what was your job and duty and, and sort of specialty within cycling and, and what is it and how has it changed between, uh, you know, riding the Tour de France and now racing for a domestic U.S. team? Well, I originally, obviously, when I was younger, um, I was a, one of the fastest guys in the world in the sprint. So I was world champion in the, on the track. Um, so, you know, I had a lot of natural speed as a kid. And uh, my um, positioning in the peloton was always one of my attributes you know it's just I think it came from you know maybe my BMX or my um my track cycling so you know for a long time there as a professional cyclist in the beginning of my career I was the sprinter the guy to win the bike races and you know it's, it's very nice but and enjoyable and you know there's, there's a lot of pressure actually because if you've got a whole team helping you towards one goal and you end up third you know you've got to walk back on the bus and go sorry guys <laughs> I wasn't fast enough today you know, it's, and because they've laid everything on the line for you, um, so you do feel a bit, a bit bad about that, you know. And so that's why it makes it so much sweeter when you can repay them with a, with a victory. And then as I progressed in the last couple of years, well, last five or six years now, I've been um, predominantly like one of the stronger um, riders and in longer endurance. I think again that might be my age that's, that's come into play. 
And I teamed up with uh, Lotto Sodal and a friend of mine that I'd made along the journey, um, Andre Greipel, who's a big German guy. He's 85 kilos and he's super, super fast, super powerful, but he just didn't have that bunch of awareness, you know, like the almost like a proprioception in the in the peloton of where to go. And and that was again one of my attributes that never leaves you with, with age, you know. It only gets better the more more racing you do. And so yeah, we chatted away and I ended up riding with him and, and um helping he went from the year before I arrived, he won eight bike races in Europe, which is, you know, and a stage of the tour which is a fantastic season, you know, you, you would call that a, a good season in Europe. And then the next year, he won 21 races with uh, following me, and, and um, so I would basically position him to the last 200 metres where he could see the finish line so that he wouldn't use as any energy, and uh, well, very little energy, and then um, at 200 metres to go, I would, you know, move out the way, and he would get a clear shot at the finish line, and... Um, yeah, with and because he had so much power, and uh, you know that was never a problem of his. You know, the power it was just the positioning. So if you got a clear run at that line, you know, nine times out of ten he was going to win, and there was only very few people that could actually get past him, if if at all. You know, so made a really good uh, sort of niche for myself there. You know, and um, sort of inspired the the role of uh, the lead out man. You know, you've heard of them for years and years, and it sort of disappeared for a while when you had guys like. Um, some famous guys like Robbie McEwen and, and uh, um, even Mark Cavendish when he first began cycling was, was always able to sort of do it on his own and didn't need a lot of help. Then he started with a train, um, they call it a, a lead out train, basically it involves four or five guys to keep the pace really high so that nobody can move and get in the way of, of the last sprinter. So. Yeah, and then we got out to train together, and we became, you know, very dominant for three or four years. There was, uh, and then, you know, a lot of teams started to work out. Okay, this is how it's going to happen now, and and uh, you know, started investing a lot of money in trying to organise this progressively faster train that would allow their sprinter to arrive at the at the finish really fast. So it's it's what's actually really interesting is you'll watch on the TV and you'll see the peloton at about 10 kilometres to go or 15 kilometres to go and they'll be just absolutely 100% across the road side by side and it just if you just watch it on TV you just look you go, oh yeah they're just cruising now look they're all just across the road doing nothing but in actual fact you've got eight or nine teams that have got the same power and same ability and they're actually doing 55k an hour but that guy on the front that all the teams are lined up he's going flat stick yeah. But on the TV, it looks like they're all side by side. They can't be going very fast. Yeah. <laughs> you go and flat out, you know. So it's, it's crazy. I mean, I remember, yeah, like the pace would pick up and then you'd watch it on TV and you'd be just like, what? It was not like that, you yeah. know. Like we would just, it was so sketchy for... Yeah, it fif- looks boring on oh, TV. <laughs> 15K to go, you're like, you know, you're yeah. just... So all your senses are aware, you know, and then you watch it on TV and you're going, that was easy. You yeah. know, it looks so easy on TV. Yeah, so that was um, anyway. Long story short, <laughs> that's how that's what was been my job for the last six years, and then uh, made the decision to move the family back here to um, Boulder, Colorado. We've got good friends here, and and uh, I've been here obviously before. I used to use uh, here as an altitude base for um, before I trained for the Tour de France. So it was uh, 
I really really love um, Colorado and Boulder especially and uh, now I'm racing for United Healthcare and uh, and um, yeah really enjoying my time back in the US yeah it's a great it's uh, Boulder's a great obviously a great place for cyclists and just amazing variety of terrain but something that that story kind of brought up for me is especially for those listening that don't know that much about cycling it's a it's a team sport where an individual wins and that's sort of a, a hard thing to kind of wrap your mind around I think for a lot of people because most sports basketball it's a team sport where mm. the team wins and in cycling there's such a so many people don't realize how much team effort goes into the race where one person you know whether it's Andre Greipel or Chris Froome or whoever it is takes the actual win and they get the glory but the team was fully behind that so can you maybe explain sort of in layman's terms how that works? I mean, you sort of alluded to it a bit. Yeah, well, the biggest thing you have to remember is um, slipstreaming. And for example, so when you're riding on the front and there's a guy right behind your wheel, he's saving 30% of his energy. So if you can do that with six guys, he actually saves a little bit more than that. And if you can do that, firstly, for the whole race over, over five hours, you imagine the energy he's saving compared to the person on the front. Right. Um, so, from first respect, it's a it's an energy saving tactic. Um, secondly, you've got, say for example, a breakaway of ten riders gets up the road. You have to make a decision on: Are we going to try and win today? Yes, we're going to try and win today with Andre. Okay, we need to catch that breakaway. So, how do we do that? We have to ask three of our guys. Well, that's their job. We don't have to ask them, but because we knew this was going to happen. We need to catch that breakaway. Let's go. So for 150, 160 kilometres, you'll see three teammates just going as hard as they can, and they may get some help from some other teams. You know, say for example, Mark Cavendish has got the same plan, so they'll put three guys up or two guys up, and then Marcel Kittel has got the same plan. So maybe three or four teams collaborate together to catch this breakaway. So then there you go. You've used up three of your teammates. Thanks very much for your hard work. And then you've got they may get catch them you know or close enough at 20 k's to go thank you very much for your work have a rest see you tomorrow <laughs> good, yeah. and you know eat the good luck to the sprinters yeah. and then we take over you know and then we ramp the pace up a little further <clears throat> make sure that no one else can jump away in the final and and um hopefully deliver for the finish you know and this is this is a typical bunch sprint same sort of rules apply on a mountaintop you know you've got the domestiques who you know for example let's take chris Froome, who's won the tour de france the last couple of years and he he'll never ever have to go and get himself a drink he'll never ever have to go and get some food for himself you know and that's the other role of like to save energy because by the time you go back to the car grab some food accelerate back to the peloton get round the peloton to the front you know you've burned we call it matches you know maybe you've got a matchbook to start your race with every time you burn a match there's one less you have for the final so it's it's uh it's a combination of things to basically, in a nutshell, save energy for the final. And the final can be a last climb, which maybe can still be 20, 30 minutes of effort. But if you arrive at that 20 or 30 minutes uphill, fresher than everybody else, there's a good chance you can win. The final might be 200 meters. If you've got, if you arrive there again, fresher than everyone else, you can hit your maximum power, your maximum speed and hopefully that's maximum speed is faster than everybody else. So if you've got a good team who knows what they're doing, they know how to make sure that the, the leader is saving energy, they win more times than not because it's the team that's 
clever through the peloton, saving energy, um, and doing it with ease, and have done it a hundred times. That makes um, winning for this one person, like you mentioned, makes it more um, repetitive and it makes it more frequent. Yeah, and it's again, it's that culmination of all those small little efforts. This the 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 you know kind of multitude of all of those effort save that little bit of energy that you can save by just slipping in you know at a, at a key moment to save Absolutely. some energy save that wind and it's just it's a really crazy sport in that way that you know the team does so much work selfless work where one person wins and i, I mean obviously you know they, it's, it, it is a team effort everybody benefits from that but it, it's just it's kind of a unique sport in that way um i want to talk a little bit about sort of training and nutrition um, because I think that's really relevant to success as an athlete. And so maybe a good place to start would be sort of like during a big block of, of, of training for a race, say the Tour de France or even, you know, re- more recently Tour of California, <clears throat> what's sort of like a day in the life of Greg Henderson? Um, yeah, day in the life. Sorry, that's a bit mad, day in the life. <laughs> <laughs> Do we really want to go there? No, um, day in the life now or before the Tour de France, there's times where you have to really switch the brain on. Mm-hmm. And I'm one of those guys that, um, uh, Chuck will account for this, uh, <laughs> when I switch on, I'm 100%, but when I when I switch off, I like to relax too. Yeah. You know, so there's... You got to have that balance. I think, yeah, I think it's a balance. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. But maybe a little bit unbalanced. <laughs> but no, but, so when you switch on, it's it's... You know, it's time. You've got you know how how long you've dedicated for altitude training leading into the Tour de France. So everything's done a hundred percent for me. Whether it's from exactly from my how many hours of sleep I've got. I measure my sleep. I measure my metrics. I measure my you know HRV. I measure everything that I can. Any metric that I have for sleeping, I make sure that it's it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be consistent. Mm. So whatever my values are as long as they're consistent every day and I'm, I'm getting enough recovery then you know i know that i'm tracking well what's um, the best advice or tips that you have for for good sleep like what have you found over the years that has helped you with sleep or that you've found to be really profound it's just the, the simple things like a, a, a ritual you know like if you if it's 10 30 it's 10 30 every night not nine one night and mm. 11 30 then like, that's the biggest thing for me i think the other just recently i've been um learning a lot about the uh you know the blue light that everyone talks about you mm. know it's, it's, which inhibits your melatonin production you know so it's for me i've noticed that's been incredible i, I put that my uh, block out as blue the blue light at about nine o'clock at night and uh you know it inc- instantly tells my body to start producing melatonin and sure enough within an hour i'm tired and just about asleep so it's it's about consistency dark room cool room you know okay sometimes that's um, unavoidable, especially in some races, you know, where you're in some crappy hotel in France somewhere, you know, that's 100 degrees. So but it's just, yeah, consistency is the sleep. And then, yeah, and same with getting up in the morning, same time, train every day at the same time, you know, it's like just a, becomes, so you don't even have to think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so then it's like just, uh, for me, it just depends on what my training load is. If it's a long endurance day, then I'll, I, I, skip the carbohydrates in the morning and maybe have an omelette and some avocado and I can screw that for a nice easy ride. Yeah, maybe long, but I usually avoid carbohydrate for the first hour or so and then I can start eating normally after that. 
of the ride. Yeah. And you've, and has that, have you found that to be really helpful for like becoming more fat adapted and, and helping to like preserve those glycogen stores, the precious glycogen stores for, you know, later in the race or, or something like that. Is that, that's kind of the reasoning behind that. That's the absolute reason because with cycling, you're either, you're either cruising along doing nothing. And so you don't want to be burning carbohydrate then. Yeah. You want to burn the fat that you've got because you've got an unlimited supply. So you have to train that too. So you have to train actually going easy. You know, everyone thinks go out the door for a professional, go out the door and slam it, you know, and just yeah. go full gas. And it's just not the way the body works, especially in racing, you know. Sometimes it's super easy. But so, yeah, you have to train train everything. Make sure that, you know, you've got the right team on board that, or you've done the right research and you've got the right interests, you know. it's. Um, but then if I'm doing intervals straight away, you know, it's a high-carbohydrate diet at being... You know, primarily fast twitch fibers in the muscles. They burn a lot of carbohydrates, so it's uh, it's made sure that the your, your glycogen levels are full. I mean, they should be after a good meal and a good sleep, but you know, make sure you've got some reserves. And then um, it's just the, the, the basic things. You know, make sure everything's everything. Every box is ticked for me. You know, I know that I respond well to altitude, so you know, I go live at altitude or stay at altitude. I know that I respond well. To heat training so every day after training I come home I have my recovery shake and I jump straight in the sauna mm. so it's 30 minutes of heat adaption um, you know, it's also proven to give a an increase in your blood plasma and can also have the same sort of effects as a, a blood volume gain and a, a same effects as altitude training so if you're doing that at altitude yeah. essentially you could be getting a double a double hit there so it's that's enough that's that's after training and then it's um straight into the ice bath after that cool the core down and uh you know there's I've read a whole lot of stuff about how you know it can mobilize your your fatty acids the the, the ice baths and it can it can um mobilize that brown fat that you have so have you heard of Wim Hof yeah yeah, yeah. so do you I'm, do the breathing I've tried the breathing <laughs> it's a bit mad that yeah breathing. it is, it yeah, is. It's but mad. it's crazy like you like I mean it it I, I've tried it a few times and it's unexplainable it, it's unexplainable yeah. like you just uh, two minutes no problem just holding no your breath worries. like did, it's crazy four and a half minutes one day oh man just exhaled fully yeah and then held my breath you just chill and just chill there's, that's got to mean something, you know? I, I don't know what it is. It's like, are you over alkaline or what's what's happened there? Like, is your body just gone into full freak out mode because you're so alkaline, full of, I, I don't know what it yeah. is. Yeah, you're basically just like super oxi- like oxygenating your blood. And so it's like, it, it just responds by like, oh, I don't need to breathe right now. I've got plenty of oxygen. But it's like, um, you know, when you hold your breath, if you take a deep breath in, and then hold it. It's actually the reason that you feel like you have to take a breath. It's not because you've actually um, run out of oxygen in the body and it's depleted. You've got these chemoreceptors on your um, aortic arch. Yeah. And that's what's telling you, mate, we've got a carbon dioxide yeah. buildup. It's more about the CO2 yeah, than the Take oxygen. a breath. Yeah. So you, it's actually, so I think maybe you're tricking that receptor in your aortic arch. And so you're actually becoming a little bit... Um, I think you're actually becoming a little bit, yeah, tricking your tricking your physiology of your body. Yeah, 
That's awesome. Uh, it's, it's inc- it's I haven't done much of the like cold showers or the <clears throat> like ice baths, but have you found that to be pretty helpful? I love it after a sauna. I don't. I'm yeah. not really fond of cold water. Yeah. And um, no, it's true. I really, I really hate it. But I tell you, like after ten times, it's so much easier, and you I don't even flinch. Any, which I never th- always. Get, I'm such a wuss. I get in the yeah. water. Yeah. You know, like a, yeah, you like <laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs> just like after ten out. times of doing it, just you don't even flinch yeah. and you get in, it's amazing how the body adapts. Yeah. And, and that combined with the breathing like makes a big difference too. Yeah, for sure. And then I do and then that's um that's with the so that's essentially to cool in my training yeah. regime, that's to cool down my core because it gets right up there. If I've especially if I've done a long hard ride and then um thirty minutes in the sauna. Um, you know, I'm pretty depleted by the time yeah. I get out. Yeah, so it's nice to cool right down, and then I can eat and drink as normal after that. It's um, it's a nice feeling after you actually you get to relax, and then uh, then the kids will come home from school. Yeah, <laughs> and then it's then um, you got workout number two. Workout number two, mate. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly how it works. No, it's it's uh, how yeah. many kids you have? I've got two kids. Oh yeah, yeah. So they're they're busy. They're very busy kids. Four and seven. So they're oh, at that age where yep, they do everything, which is which is good fun. You know, it's really nice. Keeps you grounded too. I mean, I I've never ever been one to look on cycling websites and follow this and that. You know, it's never really been. But you know, I can get back to another bike race, and the guys will be like, "Oh, did you see what happened last weekend?" I'll be like, "Mate, I was flat stick. I didn't see yeah. what happened. Was there a race on? Yeah. You know." <laughs> And then, you know, switch back into the cycling world when it's cycling time and then switch back into my family world when it's yeah. family. And I really enjoy it because it's, yeah, I think it's like we talked about, it's that mental break, you know, like you switched on for a certain period of time. And and the other thing is like I had a, have a really understanding wife, you know, she knows when it's time to switch that brain on and go into full, a court monk mode, you mm-hmm. know, where it's like, I watch everything I eat. I have to get my weight down for a certain way. I mean, I don't have to be super, super light, but I have to, I have to be really skinny. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's definitely something that I have to take care of. And the wife, you know, she knows as well. It's like, okay, here we go. We've got a month of hell. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, but, that, I mean, but that's like kind of brings up a good point where like I've, I've been pretty interested in like performance just in general. And, and I think a lot of people think that, you know, they just assume like you have to go flat out for like the full year and just be super obsessed and super tunnel vision. Um, but, or that you just have to have this perfect balance all the time. But I think in order to be, and you know, and, and let me know if you agree or disagree, but in order to have, you know, your peak performance, you have to have many, many times of, of being in that monk mode and then, and then balance that out at certain points of the year, like you've said, where you, you kind of let go, you relax a little bit, um, just at least for just the mind to kind of respond. And, and so how do you, how do you deal with sort of that, that balance? Yeah, it's something that's, it's actually come natural to me, you know, and I think it depends on also the want of the athlete, you know, you know, your goal, you know, where it is, how badly do you want because only you can control that, you know, the athlete can control that. How bad do you want to win t- or how bad do you want to do your job for the job, yeah. for the team correctly, you know? There's no maybe yeses and maybe you either do it or you don't bother, you know? And that's that's been my philosophy for cycling and for 
for my life basically you know and, and that's and then when I do relax of course I love now it used to be beer when I was a kid but now I love a glass of wine or something yeah. you know, and I'm, I'm never you know it's just something to think you know, people like to often talk about oh I'd love to get on some junk food and enjoy it but I, I mean I never really majorly restrict it you know it's like okay I'll steer clear of you know the massively dense caloric intake like a cake or a cookie and those sort of things you know definitely I won't touch that or ice cream you know it's like definitely nothing I would even look at but I mean if, if I felt like some a little bag of lollies or candy or a bag of chips or something you know it's like I mean I know it's not the best nutrition I mean I don't have it all the time but it's something that I would never deprive myself of you know because I think it's just another like sort of nail in the coffin almost if you did that for six months of a year I think because what happens if I'm convinced if you stay on that straight and narrow you may last six months you may last a year yeah. you may last five years but when the wheels come off they come off you snap unbelievably and you you know it's and there's no almost no turning around yeah so you know um, I've moved into coaching now and I always tell my athletes that it's like there has to be the times where we right out let's button down now and we call it monk mode or let's relax now and just enjoy it go out and ride your bike we're not doing intervals for this month or this week yeah. or the, you know we're just going to go and enjoy the scenery and uh and yeah go out for dinner and have your whatever you want to have if, if that's what makes you feel relaxed yeah you have to also i think check in with you know originally why you're doing this you know it's it, because like i i think for a lot of professional athletes <clears throat> and maybe just elite athletes in general you know, they, they do it because they love riding their bike. That's or, how it starts, isn't it? That's how it starts. For and, sure. And, you know, I used to race and I kind of went through a period where I just, I was like too much in monk mode and I sort of lost that initial love of, of riding my bike and I started to really h hate getting up in the morning and going for a ride to train for a race, Perfect you know? example then, isn't it? And it's just like, you know, it's exactly, it's, it's, you, there's, sometimes you, go, you take it too far and so I had to take a step back and was like, I, I just want to ride my bike you know mm. and, and enjoy it for what that is and and go adventure in the mountains and ride with friends and yeah have a beer after i get back from a ride or something um but i think that there is that perfect marriage of both of those things somewhere because yeah if you want to be one of the best in the world and you want to compete at the tour de france you have to be able to step over that line of of comfort and of uh, you know, kind of taking it to the extreme in a lot of ways yeah. with what you eat and, and what you train and stuff. So um, I think it's just, yeah, it's important to keep that in mind. And, and especially even for recreational athletes and, 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 and people in, in business, or, yeah, you know, it's yeah, like yeah. it applies to so many things. Oh, I totally agree. And, yeah. and it's just important, I, I feel, to, it's a good, it's a good analogy. Yeah. You know? um, I Because I was going to mention, you know, I had a lot of friends back in the day who were swimmers. Uh -huh. um, just from where I grew up. And they were 24 seven, you know, like it was five in the morning to seven in the morning, and then four in the afternoon to 6 p.m., eight, you know, seven days a week. And yeah, they went to the Olympics and maybe they had one or two Olympic campaigns in their whole career, and then they were done, you know? They just could not do any more mentally, mental fatigue, you know? Okay, I know there are some swimmers that have done long Olympic careers, but you know, this is, I've done five Olympic campaigns now you know so it's a testament to like my ability to perform on the, the highest level when it's time to you know and then I mean there's, there's races I've turned like 
when I first start back training. It's quite funny. A funny story is when I when I get back into training, it's usually no end of no, November, December, somewhere around there, and I'm normally back in Australia, and I'll start training with the, the Australian guys and you know maybe a couple of Kiwis, but and they hammer me, yeah. absolutely slaughter me, you yeah. know, and they're like, they start thinking, <laughs> it's summer, you know. <laughs> Hendy rides the Tour de France yeah. and fucking hammering him, you know. Yeah. And then, you know, week by week, you know, just got getting fitter and fitter. And then, you know, I realised, okay, I've picked a goal that's, you know, so it's I switch into monk mode because it's holidays in January and December, so I, I enjoy them, you know. And then once all of a sudden, you know, the weight starts to come off, the fitness comes up, and then all of a sudden they're like... <laughs> It's like they reckon it's like a switch when yeah. they, they meet me out training. It's like, oh, Hindi's gone into you know monk mode. Oh, here we go. And uh, yeah, it's just a massive changes. But you can see them thinking, oh, it's not. It can't be that hard in yeah. Europe if, if if Greg can sort of <laughs> hang out because I'm kicking his backside yeah. today. Yeah, give me a month, guys. I'll, I'll be fit in a month. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. So now you're racing for UHC, and you just. Uh, had tour of california but you just you broke your hand right before that how did that happen it was just a crash in, in a race that we were doing and um it's one of those things where i had a sore thumb and i was like wow well, i'm not going to go to the doctor because i don't want to complain about a sore thumb yeah. you know and it was swollen and bruised and i thought oh, i'll look like a bit of a goose if i go there and he goes yeah you've got a sore thumb so i raced for another three weeks with it and uh i bought like a splint from Walgreens or something you know and raced around and it just wasn't getting any better and I thought I'd better do better get this checked out because I've got now you know a couple of weeks to tour California I I continued to train so I had no problems it was just racing was really painful over the bumps and things so uh, yeah anyway I went and got an x-ray sure enough it was broken so I said to the doc look I've got this race, Tour of California, which is a, it's a massive goal for United Healthcare. So, and I'd I'd been a hundred percent preparing for Tour of California, so I was in I was in perfect condition. Um, and uh, I, so I end up in racing Tour of California in a in a cast that we specifically made for um, you know riding on the handlebars, and so I wouldn't wouldn't actually jar the bone anymore, and hmm. it would made things doable. And he said, "Look, I'll let you race in this because you can't do it any more damage. It's broken. It's broken. It's just not going to. It's just going to prolong the healing process." So, raced that. Um, then I came back and I had to do one more. Ra- oh, he could he only operates on Tuesdays, so I thought, <laughs> that's that's perfect. I said, "I've got to race in the weekend." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I did my last race, you know, last weekend, and then uh, for the t- and then went under the knife on Tuesday. So um, yeah, it's uh, now it's just I have ten days in this cast again and then you know, get the stitches out and we make another you know, adaptable cast because it'll be the bone will have started to fuse together then and then I can train normally again only bike racing where <laughs> people race bikes on and compete on broken bones it's, it's just like god it's so classic because it's just I think cyclists have such a high pain tolerance you know I wonder and what it is yeah, or or they're just naturally crazy people like, yeah, either yeah, one we just we talked about this and it's like you have you see those big crashes, you know, and like skin off everywhere, hardly any, you know, bikes broken. And the first thing they do is like they get up and they look for a new bike and you run to get back and catch the peloton and then assess your damage 
yeah. once you're back. It's like, who does that? Yeah, I was. I mean, I was just yesterday actually just interviewing uh, Tom Sconge from uh, yeah. Cannondale, and he just had that really bad crash. I don't know if you guys saw that, yeah. where he was, yeah, fully, completely, you know, road rash. He got had a concussion. He broke his collarbone, and like immediately when he crashed just got back on the bike he should not have been back on the bike because he was like disoriented while like stumbling mm. around like he he should have been like at a hospital immediately but i think he finished that stage or, or no, i think no, he got they pulled him off the they bike. pulled him yeah. yeah but like he was like riding again and mm. it was just like that is so crazy you know like that's just that mindset of of cyclists i feel and um and i mean maybe other endurance sports too but most sports won't even let you get back no. in. You know? An accident like that, you, yeah, yeah. you wouldn't be... Nah, that it's was, dangerous. That was a big wreck, for sure. And there's, yeah, there's so many of them that you know, go unseen. Obviously, that's because there was TV coverage, but you know, there's probably a crash like that every oh, weekend. Yeah. You yeah, know? And exactly. the guy will get back up and straight back into it. It's, like, it's a madness on the behalf of the cyclists. They've got that weird brain set, you know? Yeah. That weird mindset. <laughs> I don't know what it is. And so you're coaching now, um, cycling. Uh, what is, what are some of your main philosophies when it comes to coaching for um, maybe just the average, you know, racer or athlete uh, for, to to kind of improve their cycling? Because I think a lot of people that listen to this show, you know, maybe they're new to cycling or they're um, or they don't know much about cycling, obviously. But for those of the, for those of them that are maybe bike racers or interested in getting into bike racing. What is something that you always kind of offer up to your athletes and clients? Um, the simple thing is like consistency. Like if it's, don't go out and do the extremes. Yeah. Like don't, you don't have to go and do four hours in the mountains today. Like just keep it nice and keep it steady and keep it consistent. Two hours, two hours, two hours, two. And you build up such a bit of base and, and fitness from being consistent and rather than going and doing four hours really hard and then having three days off I mean it's just a waste of time then doing that four hours so the first thing I say is just keep it consistent and keep it simple and and ride every day you know and enjoy it you know make sure that you're still enjoying it if it's if you're not have a rest have a day off if you're tired have a have a rest don't be afraid to take the rest either but I just eliminate the eliminate the extremes when you're starting out there's no there's no point for it because it can make you lose the love of the sport yeah. if it has to be a suffer for six hours like that's not fun it's a little bit fun when you get home and go oh i made it <laughs> yeah <laughs> but then you know then it's like i said there's three or four days to recover from that so it's like and they don't look at the bike for four days yeah it was just almost pointless so that's where the gains are made in yeah. that recovery period you Look, know it's that's the thing I, I just wouldn't bother with that's the one thing i offer up is usually the consistency yeah, and I think that can be applied to so many other parts of life too. You know, I, I think people want results now, whether it's with work or you know money or relationships or you know anything. It's just so important to kind of put in the work day in and day out um, in a sustainable way, and and maybe that's something that is hard for endurance athletes, hard for for cyclists that often are very Type A, very obsessive minded people to be able to dial it back when it needs to be dialed back. And I think it takes a lot of courage and a lot of um, self-awareness to, to be able to, to, you know, say and wake up mm. when you wake up in the morning, like, I feel like crap today. I shouldn't ride, even if 
you know, on the schedule you had oh, a four sure. hour ride or something, it's, it's really hard to, to grapple with that because a lot of people would just be like, Oh, well, like, you know, this, I'm just, I'm just a slacker. Like I, yeah, I need to just like hammer through it, push through the pain. Cause that's what you need, you need to make the adaptation or do you rest and really listen to your body? It's hard. Oh, agreed. Agreed. And, um, one thing my old coach taught me years ago, and it's it's still kind of relevant. It's and it's a simple check: is don't make your decision on training until you've gone down your home street on the bike, because often you can yeah you can feel like that in the morning, and you can wake up with no motivation, and and then you decide your training from that mindset. Whereas it's like I think if you had of if you go down the road and pedal down the road and you turn the corner and you still feel like a bag of assholes, <laughs> sure, then go home, you know. Yeah. But um, yeah, don't make that decision on training or, or the schedule or, or you know, 100% until you've actually put your shoes on, put your helmet on, jumped on your bike because a lot can change. And uh, it's, yeah, like I said, that was 30 years ago I got told that, you know, and it's, it's so true. A lot of it can be just dealing on whether you slept well the night before, or the stress in your life, or you're busy at work, or, or something like that. You know, it can be just not actually how you're feeling physically, as in a in a performance way. It can be just mentally how you're feeling, and then it can actually be the best thing for you to go out and ride your bike, fresh air, different scenery. So it's a it's a definitely a good balance. And the other thing is obviously to have a hundred percent faith in and the coach or, or the guy who's writing your programs, you know, because experience will tell you. And, you know, when when I'm logging all my training and my sleep metrics, it, it takes a lot of the guesswork out too. And it's it's so accurate nowadays that, you know, it, it can predict after, you know, I've done a f- four-week block or something, you know, I'm going to be super fatigued and, you know, it's going to take probably five, six days to I actually really get the benefits from that block that I've done so it's it's trust in your coach it's trust in knowing your own body which takes time if you're starting from new obviously but the experienced riders or coaches will know and be able to inform you that way and and then yeah just and not be afraid of taking the rest days and then um, consistency like every day try and get out the door have a look around see how you feel but don't steer clear of the extremes we talked a little bit about this, but I want to hear more about sort of your philosophy um, around nutrition and food and sort of what you've learned over the years as an elite athlete, what has worked best for you just in terms of not only, you know, sort of nutrition and food within the parameters of, of, of actual training and racing, but just kind of your general diet. I mean, what is it? What does it kind of look like? Um I've really got into the micronutrients. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, I find that a lot of the the food that we buy now is actually because of the soil that it's been it's been grown and isn't actually you know as healthy as it's um, you know maybe packaged as. You know, <clears throat> I think uh, you know the last maybe sixty seventy years ago, I think the soil was a lot more nutrient dense than. So if you can find a a a, a company that incorporates the organic vegetables the organic um you know minerals and and things that are that are um you know raised in a 
or or, or grown in a way that's um, you know obviously more beneficial for the for the body. It's it's definitely if, if it can get it all in one one hit, it's like um, it almost sort of like speeds up the process of your body healing and your, your body becoming fitter. I mean, if you've got a really good diet, there's almost no need for um, you know these. You see these guys taking so many multivitamin tablets and yeah. if you've got a, a good morning or afternoon ritual like a shake a, a recovery shake and then a nighttime supplement as well in the, in the in a food supplement not actually like a pill yeah it's it's so it sort of fast tracks i think it's the word i'm after is like it's just the easy way to be healthy you know and it's um because a lot of the food that, like i said i'll go back and repeat myself a lot of the food that you buy i'm it's not packaged, or it's not. You don't get what it's packaged, so you need to you need to supplement it. Yeah, and that's what I've noticed over the years now is what's worked really well for me is just that. It's just that those small supplementations of my micronutrients that you know they keep me healthy. They, they um you know they starve off um, cravings for food. Um, you know it's all those all those things that people go. Oh, I've got you know afternoon snacks or all that stuff. It's just it really helps with that sort of thing. It's it's so simple to do, but you know you just have to you just have to do some reading and do some research and 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 you know have that want for yourself. Speak to your mates, speak to and then you know be an open sponge. You know listen to people's ideas. You know and don't be closed off and and like this is what I do because it worked for me this time. I mean you can't think like that. You know like yeah. and you see like I mean these photos of people that put up their Instagrams and. This is what Team Sky is eating for dinner, you know, and it's like I'm gonna eat that now. A little piece of meat and some <laughs> brown rice. But you know for a fact there's blended juices on the yeah. table and there's everything out and they've got their nighttime scoops and they're you know, it's like and guys like, Oh, that's all I'm having, you know, this yeah. is what Chris Froome eats, a little piece of meat and <laughs> yeah. some rice. It's like oh, mate, I was on Sky for two years, I know exactly what they Yeah. So, and if it's just because it's working for Froome doesn't mean it's going to work for you. Absolutely, you know, Froome's a freak of nature. Yeah, you know? it's like, are you a freak of nature? <laughs> Maybe not. You know, so it's um, that would be my take-home message for for nutrition is is um, you know, I've taken obviously a lot more interest as I've got older. Obviously, when I'm twenty, I'm bulletproof. You don't need to, you know, yeah. I'm thinking about that sort exactly. of thing. But then also, you know, twenty years ago, it wasn't such a such a you know diverse market and um you know that's the other thing you have to be careful of being an athlete is is what market you get into you know you have to be have confidence in the product you're using you know that's that's definitely another thing is you can't just buy anything off the shelf nowadays it's it's ridiculous it's like um and uh you know if you're a professional athlete you have to be even more careful because of the testing protocols and things like that but again it's uh, sometimes what comes in the in the bottle isn't what is labelled, you know, and it's it's not it's packaged wrong, and that, and that goes fundamentally all the way down from a, a, a scooped protein drink that you might have from a from a supermarket to the the vegetables you buy at that same supermarket, you know. It's uh, so you just it's a little bit of research, and then if someone's done the hard work for you, all the better, you know. If you trust that person, you know the company, or you know the or the person, yeah, exactly. It's going to make that hard work is done for you, and you, and uh, again it fast tracks the easy way to healthiness yeah and one thing that i've seen a lot with with athletes is i think just because typically we can be really type a really obsessive is we tend to overcomplicate 
food and nutrition and you know whether it's the pills and the supplements and you know researching everything obsessively and and tracking everything and and looking at what Chris Froome is eating or something Mm -hmm. and and just obsessing over that we tend to miss the forest for the trees in a lot of ways where we we you know the body is is super smart and it knows what to do when you feed it the right ingredients whether it's you know high quality vegetables or protein or you know different nutrients and um and and I think that can kind of detract away from from the performance aspect in a lot of ways it's because it, it can kind of backfire on you you know oh, sure. you, you get too caught up and obsessed with that stuff that it just it kind of it makes you unhealthily focused on it you know and and so um i guess like what are some of your words of wisdom for just general like aside from supplements and powders and stuff like that like just general nutrition tips like maybe what are some of your you know kind of favorite meals and i mean obviously i you know not not saying that listeners need to eat exactly what you eat Mm. but how do you sort of plan that stuff out um well i actually really enjoy cooking yeah. So it's actually like a hobby of mine is cooking. And I think that's a great first step is like learn how to le- learn the basics of cooking. Learn the basics of the food that you're dealing with. Um, learn how to prepare the, the food. And there's, there's so many different ways of preparing food. You can have, you know, a, a chicken breast and there's 50 different ways of preparing yeah. it from healthy to deep fried for half an hour. Yeah. You know, it's like take your pick, you yeah. know. But, so it's, it's, it's a, a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of interest in, in what you're eating. And that makes a big difference for sure. Um, as for the food that I like, you know, it's it's a definitely a, a vegetable-based, plant-based diet that I primarily stick to. I I do I steer clear of meat. Um, I can't call myself a, a vegetarian. I never would, because um, you know, there's every now and then we do as a family enjoy some chicken or some, yeah. a steak or something. But you know, I would say five. Six nights a meal, uh, meals a night, <laughs> six meals a week yeah. <laughs> is is definitely meat free, and uh, yeah, we enjoy it. The kids, the kids really don't even know they don't don't yeah. miss it, and um, yeah, it's just uh, just one of the things I th- I think I know that my plants and my vegetables are, are healthy. I know how to, and that was another learning thing that I really enjoyed was how can I make some of these vegetables enjoyable? You know, you look at some of them and they're how am I going to make these green beans taste yummy? You know, so no, it's definitely it's and it's a, yeah, like I said, it's a hobby, so it fills in time. It's after training, I start preparing my, you know, depending on what time training finishes, but usually it's quite late. Get the kids home, get them fed, and then, you know, while while they're getting bathed or whatever, I'm usually chopping up some fresh veggies. Yeah. Cool. So uh, Chuck this, in the house. yeah, yeah, this is Chuck. Uh, I run uh, the e-commerce here at Healthy Scoop and. Uh, Handy and Greg here and I were teammates 20 years ago and one of our first big stage races and oh I'm gonna preface this by saying so this is 20 years ago (laughs) and we've already talked about how you know your diet and things have changed so much since then and now I'm at Healthy Scoop we make (laughs) plant-based powdered nutrition so uh, Greg and I were roommates at the Tour de Beauce which is this really hard stage race up in Canada and I remember every night We'd go, well, we'd have team dinner in like the team dinner dining hall. We'd go back to our hotel room and we would instantly order two large pizzas. (laughs) (laughs) So so every night we were just housing pizzas every night. So 
have you ever done that since then? And can you <laughs> imagine doing that now, like the tour of California? Uh, because I can't eat gluten, mate. I'd end up on the toilet all night. <laughs> oh, <laughs> mate. Be in a bad state of affairs. I'd be in big trouble if I eat that. Yeah, maybe our metabolism was so... Oh, I know what it was. They were feeding us like they eat at Team Sky. So we only had like a tiny little bit of rice and a tiny... <laughs> you know piece of meat so we were hungry mate we had to eat we had to eat to get through the race yeah i remember that oh, that was a good old times days have changed yeah. times yeah, have yeah, changed, times <laughs> changed so we got to wrap this up pretty soon um i, I want to kind of finish with what is it about cycling for you that makes you keep coming back you know you've had a long career and it's it's i think to to people to cyclists, there's a lot of differences in terms of why we love it. But, um, you know, I can speak for myself that it's, you know, that adventure and that sense of freedom that comes with exploring on a bike and using that as a mode of transportation and also it allows you to be a very fit person. But from a professional cyclist point of view, what is it about riding your bike that you love so much? Um, it's, it's definitely changed as I've got older. I mean, fundamentally, yes, it's the freedom, it's the travel, and it's the it's the new sites. You know, I mean, there's so many countries that this, the bike will take you professionally. And, you know, fundamentally that's... And then, and then when I was younger, it was all about winning. You know, I had to beat this guy, and I can't believe he beat me this weekend. I'm gonna beat him next weekend, you know? And that competitive nature, and I guess I'll always have that competitive nature, and my wife has it, and then, you can see it coming out in the kids as well, you know. So that's born into you, that competitive grit. Um, but then it was like, uh, and, and now it's more um, helping and developing riders as to be the best they can be because I know that I never really had anyone to sort of help guide me in what direction I wanted to go. I had to figure all that out myself, you know, especially you know, everything, all the micro things of cycling i had to work them out for myself and work out what worked for me best so if i can pass on some of my knowledge that i've you know acquired over the over the 20 years of being professional then uh you know it's great it, it, again it fast tracks some of the the things for for younger athletes you know and the things to steer clear of the things the do's and don'ts you know it's like so that's what now motivates me and then of course I, you know i'm obviously it pays the bills. <laughs> yeah. you know, that's that's another, a great motivation. It's another determining factor, you know. And at least, yeah, you can't deny that. It's like, um, you know, you have mortgages to pay, you know, school fees, you know, like it's it's life. So yeah. it's it's a job, you know. Initially it started out as just my sport. I was going to university. I did a sports science degree. So, you know, I did six years at university. And then, then it became like, well, I'll try out this cycling and see before I go and I wanted to do a um, degree in, um, sorry, a, my doctorate in exercise metabolism. Mm. But I was like, well, before I commit to another four years at university, let's have, because I was quite good, I'd already been to an Olympics and you know I was fifth in the world or something on the track. So I was like, well, let's see how far I can take this cycling. And never got back to university, you know? So yeah. it was from that, that point on, I was like professional cyclist. And I mean, I started very low, obviously, and, and uh, Know, over here racing for jelly beans basically and then um and then uh yeah just progressed and it was just that you know that drive to the get to the next step what's the next step okay i'm at the top of the u.s great what's the next step europe oh crikey go over there get my head beaten in over there 
get better and better, you know, and progress through to the, to the you know, I was effectively one of the best lead out men in the world there. For a while, I was one of the best sprinters in the world. So it was like, I reached the top of that. And, you know, now I'm, now I'm 40 and uh, it's time to start slowly winding it down and, and, um, and yeah, passing on that knowledge. And I really enjoy that aspect of, of cycling because there are so many intricate details that, that make a good rider from a great rider. Cool. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for coming in and uh, talking with me today and um, wish you best of luck with, with your recovery with the, the hand and, Jeez, and with mate. the rest of the season and uh, that, uh, yeah, safe safe riding. And, and I guess just to finish it off, like, do you have any kind of last minute words of wisdom for the, for the, for the listeners? Uh, go eat some plants. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Cheers, Mike.